Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to episode 376 of the Naturally Nourished Podcast. Today we are exploring the fertility cliff myth, this idea that fertility suddenly and sharply declines all of a sudden at the magical age of 35. If you're feeling like your biological clock is ticking, you'll want to listen to this episode to learn whether this is something you actually need to worry about, what other factors can contribute, and what you can do to extend your reproductive window or range and even increase and enhance fertility as you age. Yes. As Becky and I talked offline before we started recording today, we're going to talk to you guys about a lot of the metrics that could advance aging process and could have unfavorable effects on egg health or sperm motility or morphology. And it's interesting though, when we talk about statistics of advanced maternal age, if you will, um, how I just don't think that we have enough data catching up with the last decade or so. You know, I think that when we look personally in our friend circles or in society, we're really seeing this relearning or this unlearning of what was sold to us as feminism and the timeline of prioritizing career trajectory. We've now learned so much more about the impact of birth control and post-birth control syndrome and how with birth control preventing ovulation, that in turn suppressing progesterone, you know, we talked about a little bit of that a couple episodes back on natural ways to produce progesterone or to enhance progesterone. But to note that when progesterone is suppressed, that that does kind of shut down some of the innate motherhood mechanisms or that natural desire to be pregnant that we are all innately wired with. Um, And so I think that there's a lot of things to consider as, you know, me speaking at age 39 here, as I think about how to discuss becoming a mother and womanhood with my daughter, Stella, who is seven years old now, and how different things will look in decades to come. I think that we might be in a short-term apex of later gestation years now, but it's possible that in the coming generations, we're going to start to see this reprieve of women having babies earlier in their 20s and maybe not prioritizing career, but prioritizing what seems backwards, homemaking, being Mm -hmm. a mother, and, um, you know, all these different family values that we're seeing come to light, especially as we're starting to question, you know, our stress response, this idea of working for retirement or just living a life of, you know, what you choose from the first place. Sure. Yeah, totally. All, all could play in for sure, um, into the trends that we're seeing with our generation, I think. Um, before we get into all that, let's just go into updates real quick. Um, so first of all, Merry Christmas because this episode airs the week of Christmas. So we hope you all had a wonderful, restful, 
stress-free holiday Absolutely. Um, with your families, lots of laughs and good food and snuggling your kiddos extra tight um, and just blissing out over the holiday. Absolutely. That's the priority. Connection is key. And uh, of course, celebrating the season. But I hope that also as this week is hitting you, that you're making a plan of what comes next. And we are only weeks away, that means, from the start of our 12-week Food as Medicine Ketosis class. This is going to launch on January 10th. So we're going to let you get those kiddos back into school. Stella doesn't start until January 8th. Goodness gracious. So get all your ducks back in a row after the holiday travel and chaos. And then get back into line and jump off that diving board on January 10th with our 12-week Food as Medicine Ketosis program. As you'll hear, surprise, surprise, in today's episode, ketosis is one of the best ways to optimize fertility, and I've covered this in past episodes, where when we look at the primary mechanisms of infertility or the conventional model of how infertility is addressed, often the first line of defense is going to be metformin, which is an oral hypoglycemic drug, so a drug that lowers blood sugar. Then they also might play with Clomid, which is basically like a slingshot to the pituitary and is going to impact your FSH and LH values to help to correct that ratio. And so what's beautiful about a food as medicine especially or a quality approach to nutritional ketosis is that you're getting your blood sugar addressed. We're going to address that insulin resistance, of course, with ketosis. So we don't need the metformin drug. And then that influence on the pituitary, we've seen so many keto miracle babies because we see less oxidative stress and we do see a shift in that FSH to LH ratio. So instead of just slinging and hitting the pituitary gland, we'll talk in today's episode about different supplements, herbs, and things that can modulate the pituitary and support in the world of maybe ensuring we have a long enough luteal phase for optimal fertility. But keto is key if you're looking at extending your fertility and especially if you can get your husband on board because that means that we'll get best from both partners impact with high antioxidant, anti-inflammatory diet, and that insulin sensitivity. Yes. So our keto program kicks off, as you said, January 10th. This is a 12-week virtual program and this is the first time that we are doing it as a weekly format. So every other week we will still have the kind of high level, uh, more functional medicine intensive classes, if you will. And then on the off weeks from that, like week two, four, six, et cetera, um, we will be doing more of a handholding deep dive Q and a type of session, um, where, you know, anything goes, we'll still get questions ahead of time on a Google form, um, but we'll do more case studies where, you know, you might have some lab work where your cholesterol panel kind of looks a little bit wonky and you want to troubleshoot it with us. And we'll be able to have an hour to do case studies like that or adjust your macros right there in the moment or go through best practices of, you know, how to address your supplementation questions and whatnot. Um, so I think that'll be a very unique feature of this particular program and how we'll do it from here on out, assuming all goes well. We also will support you for 12 weeks on our Slack forum, which is where we share inspiration and 
recipes and also where we do more troubleshooting in between classes. You will also get um, exclusive discounts on labs up to a value of $250 off of our MRT, which is kind of the priciest lab on our website. Um, anywhere 25 to $250 discount on labs and then exclusive um, supplement discounts too during the duration of your program. Yes. So if looking for fertility, if looking to get off of a blood pressure medication or a pre-diabetic status to absolutely not even looking at diabetes or looking for weight loss, this program is for you. In fact, participants in our fall round saw upwards of 40 pounds of weight loss in this 12-week window. We've seen reversal of non-alcoholic fatty liver, reduction of blood pressure, individuals getting off of medications, and then so much more, having reduced cravings, feeling like themselves again, having clear mental status and balanced mood, less irritability, so much more. It is my favorite program. I've been running it now for over 14 years and every round it gets so much better. This round I'm super stoked to offer this 12-week continuum versus bi-weekly approach and we're doing that at just an extra $100 for the entire program. So it's $399 for three months of support absolutely amazing clinical outcomes and we can't wait to meet you in the class it's limited to 100 participants and we have about 20 spots left it absolutely will sell out all right before we get into today's topic let's just have a quick word from our sponsor for today noble origins and Surprise, surprise, we're going to talk about organs in this episode too. Yes. So organs are absolutely nature's multivitamin and Noble Origins creates an organ complex of powdered blend of high quality beef organs from New Zealand sourced grass-fed beef, liver, heart, kidney, pancreas, and spleen. This allows this snout-to-tail philosophy to easily integrate into your kitchen as you can add a half teaspoon or teaspoon of the Noble Origins blend into smoothies, savory uh, spreads, or sauces as a great way to increase mineral B vitamin, and even compounds like CoQ10, which is a powerful antioxidant to optimize fertility status. If you are squeamish about organ blends in a grind form or haven't been able to source clean at your farmer's market or grocery store, Noble Origins is a great solution to ensure that you can use food as medicine with organs in your daily or at least couple times a week approach to optimal eating. Go on over to NobleOrigins.com, that's N-O-B-L-E-O-R-I-G-I-N-S.com slash discount slash Allie Miller RD and use Allie Miller RD at checkout to save on your order and get a free bag of Noble Organs, the Origins Organ Complex based on your purchase amount. All right. As we're getting into it today, I'll note that just a few episodes ago, back in 361, we talked about fertility quite a bit, um, including testing to do when trying to conceive, thoughts on freezing your eggs and kind of weighing out the cost benefit there, how to improve egg quality with aging. Um, and we actually have a whole episode two you mentioned um, that we just put out on boosting your progesterone naturally. That was episode 
374. So I'll link those resources for y'all in the show notes. Awesome. I think both of those most recent ones are great, especially 361 where we dig deep into labs. So if we're not going to recover that on today's episode. So again, if fertility is your goal, be sure to check out 361. And then also any of our episodes that we've done with Dr. Anna Kabeka, um, there was a Q&A one. It's uh, two episodes prior, not the one on menu pause, but I can't think of the name of the episode, but we'll link it here um, where we looked at, I think it was from fertility through menopause mm-hmm. and beyond or something like that. And Dr. Kabeka shares her story in more detail where you know she was diagnosed with premature ovarian failure and then she discovered maca and that was kind of the... Uh, preface of her developing her keto greens shake product which uses maca in there and she actually had her last baby once she was I think she was 41 or something like that but in her 40s so from premature ovarian failure in her 30s telling her that her sexual organs were shutting down to a successful full-term pregnancy quite a remarkable shift absolutely working against the clock of this uh, aging, you know, time lapse or not falling off the fertility cliff, but making a fertility V where she dipped in the middle and then actually bounced back up her fertility once she nourished herself and managed her stress levels better. Yes. Love all of her episodes. So we will be sure to link those as well for today's resources. Um, let's go ahead and just jump in with defining this fertility cliff, if you will. Sure. So the fertility cliff is basically thought to be a certain point in time when your ability to get pregnant diminishes. Uh, So, you know, this can vary from person to person. There's not this dynamic value. Um, But, you know, we do think of this idea that, and, and this is still controversial too. I don't know if you've seen Becky some buzz on this, but what we've learned and what most research indicates is that you are born with the amount of eggs that you have as a woman with a uterus and uh, you may not, I say may because this is slightly controversial, you may not regenerate more eggs. Um, kind of unknown actually mm-hmm. in, in today's climate. And so again, I'm, I'm not sure if, if we'll have a lot of updates to this as more research evolves, but because we're now seeing so many women in their 40s with healthy full-term pregnancy, the question is, you know, did they just not break down or have as remarkable of a decline with those eggs, um, less oxidative stress, or were they actually able to regenerate egg production? And and some of that's unknown. We talked a little bit about the AMA or the anti-mullerian hormone in that episode that we referenced, the episode 361. And I even talked about that with Dr. Kabeka on that episode on the Q&A. And I asked, can AMH levels increase? Um, and she said, you know, well, they actually, she doesn't know. (laughs) She said, I don't know. I've never seen it. And I don't know if that's necessarily the most primary indicator Mm -hmm. of ovarian reserves to begin with. But the idea is that you're born with one to 2 million eggs and that over time, these eggs of course are released through the menstrual cycle. And then also various toxins, oxidative stressors can deplete the eggs. And so that reserve or store declines. There's this statement of age 35 that's been used, I think dating back from the seventies or so, um, as when that decline hits, um, but it is not a cliff that just falls off into the ether. There's definitely more of a slope-like impact, as we'll talk about today. Sure. Like you don't just suddenly from age 34, you know, and 11 months to 
35, the second that that clock ticks right. to 35, you don't just lose all chances you go from 100 of to zero. <laughs> conceiving a baby. Um, and you also don't suddenly become high risk, which is how you're treated in conventional prenatal care as a geriatric pregnancy the mm-hmm. second you turn 35. Yeah, I love that word, geriatric, right. when you're in your 30s. Right. <laughs> Pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there is, you know, the the notion that the chance of high-risk pregnancies can increase with increasing age, and there is some validity here um, with, you know, advanced maternal age being associated with an increased risk of miscarriage, for example. Um, so miscarriage being lowest in um, the 25 to 29 group at about 9.8%. Lowest risk age is age 27 at 9.5%. And then highest risk age was 45 plus at 53%. Yes. And then a little bit higher in the mothers under 20 Mm -hmm. at almost 16%. And so we can think of miscarriage as driving factor of not having enough progesterone mm-hmm. that can definitely interfere with healthy implantation of an egg. And we talked about how progesterone levels can decline even prior to estrogen in women. So that could play a role there. Um, and then also just, I think, nutritional status and cellular vitality is really what we're looking at with the sure. aging process. I keep saying oxidative stress, you know, thinking of just like when we talk about cardiovascular disease, and we talk about the vessels like a garden hose. If we leave that garden hose in freeze and in heat, and there's a lot of uh, temperature or weathering, if you will, to that vessel, that's going to create damage and more risk for heart disease as we age. We can think of that down to our sexual glands and organs as well. You know, they basically do get a little bit weathered, and so functionality can reduce, and then the quality of the egg and or quality of sperm could be impacted as as we age. Okay. Um, and yes, this myth of the age 35 kind of comes from the 1970s, as you mentioned, that was when, um, women were being advised to have amniocentesis, um, after a certain age to detect whether the baby would have a certain chromosomal abnormality, particularly we're looking at risk of down syndrome. And we've since learned that that procedure in and of itself actually has a pretty high risk of pregnancy loss. Sure. Sure. So invasive and can stress Mm -hmm. the fetus in the process of assessing. And there is statistically higher risk of down syndrome with age. But again, Becky and I were talking offline where I was saying, um, you know, national, uh, down syndrome society gives these stats that I'll share in a moment. But I'm not sure if the pool of individuals that were having a baby at age 40 is substantially larger now mm-hmm. than it was last decade. Sure. I would assume it is by multiple hundreds of percent. And especially if we look two decades back at women in their 40s, I would think it was almost non-existent, very unconventional, probably only for women that had four, five, six plus babies to have a uh, baby in their 40s. Whereas now some women are having their first baby sure. in their 40s. Yeah, yeah. So I think, again, that's also different demand on the organelle, different weathering in the process of the body, different nutrient depletion state, and so much more. Yep. Yep. And, and, you know, 80% of babies with Down syndrome are actually born to women under age 35 years. Yeah. So the stats are that a 25-year-old has a 1 in 1,200 chance of having a baby with Down syndrome. By age 35, the risk increases to 1 out of 350 and then becomes 1 in 100 by age 40. And so that's where that steep 
influxes and definitely remarkable going from the thousand plus into uh, one in 100. Um, but again, as you said, 80% of the babies born with Down syndrome are born to women under age 35. Uh, I have, you know, multiple clients with children with Down syndrome that have had uh, children following that pregnancy without Down syndrome. It's also about a one in 100 chance of a repeat um, I've seen statistically. And I think that that also came back a couple decades ago with a lot more nuance, a lot less resource, uh, a lot less support in uh, the development OT and the needs of children with Down syndrome. Whereas now we're in a totally different environment of capacity. And I know many women, especially in the natural birth space, elect out of any form of right, testing right. because they kind of are going to take that back seat to God and just allow the process that of the miracle of life that's been given to sure. them. Yeah, yeah. Doing no, you know, nuchal translucency um, screening or where you kind of measure the neck fold, which can um, have a very high rate of false, false. positive mm-hmm. as well. And, you know, you're expecting your baby to have Down syndrome and preparing yourself mentally and then they end up not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or imagine, you know, if you decided to terminate that pregnancy and, and it was a false, false positive. Mm-hmm. No so, doubt. Um, so, you know, we're looking at women having babies later in life and, and there are some stats out there. So 2017, the National Center for Health Statistics reported that birth rates for mothers uh, thought to be in their peak were reproductive years, which is younger than 30, were actually falling while birth rates for women 30 to 44 were rising. And since 2007, the birth rate has risen by 19% amongst women in their early 40s and by 11% for women in their mid 30s. Okay. And um, I think it's so interesting, just as a side caveat, I always think of this. One of my friends, when I was pregnant with Stella, looked at my mom at the baby shower and she was like, you know, you held Stella in your body when you were pregnant with Allie. Um, and, and that's like such a trip if it is this idea mm-hmm. that there's the one or two million eggs that a baby girl is born with. Once their sexual organs are developed, those eggs are actually intact in the mama's womb, right? Through that pregnancy process. And so a lot of where we're at with our fertility risk or infertility status ties back to epigenetics or your mama. Right. Um, And so we'll talk about today, you know, the things that we can modify and change. um, But just knowing that, you know, those eggs were formed when you were in the womb and based on your mama's diet, your mama's stress level, and so many other variables would have a big impact on your initial bank, if you will, to begin with, your reserves. Yep. So things that are beyond your control, but as, you know, a mother or future mother, you could have some control of future generations, right? No doubt. Um, So let's talk about um, some of this new research about this fertility cliff and what has kind of changed. Okay. So a study was conducted in 2021 and it investigated 60 year trends in the reproductive lifespan of women in the U.S. Researchers found that the mean age of menopause has actually increased by one and a half years. So from age 48 nearly to age 50. And according to the study, the mean reproductive lifespan of a woman also increased by two years. So from a window of 35 to 37 years of her life. Um, So we're seeing a higher average uh, delivery age at age 37 now. Um, And this means that a woman's average reproductive lifespan now lasts around age 12. 
0.7 or age 13 from their first menstrual cycle all the way through age 50 or so uh, when they will have that onset of that later menopause than we saw in prior decades. So this suggests that the female fertility is maybe less inflexible than we previously thought and that these rates can change over time. Now, again, I would argue, has there been something biochemically changing or physiologically, or is this a lifestyle choice? <laughs> um, you know, and, and I think that's something that we just maybe didn't have the data because people were having babies earlier when they weren't on birth control and going into the workforce as a priority in their 20s. Totally. Um, this study did acknowledge a bunch of different lifestyle factors that can contribute to infertility. And I thought um, one of the interesting ones that they called out was EMF and cell phone radiation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's certainly new in the past couple of decades, how much we're getting exposed to. And we did a whole episode on EMF and alluded a little bit to the impact on reproduction and not keeping your cell phone, you know, in your pants pocket right. or on your body for that reason. Mm -hmm. No doubt. We know that there's increased levels of DNA fragmentation and that this has been reported in mobile phone users. And, you know, these EMF gadgets, whatever they are, whether it's phone, whether it's iPad, et cetera, they're going to transmit radio frequency electromagnetic waves that have an adverse effect on sperm motility, on sperm number and morphology. There's actually higher serum free testosterone and lower luteinizing hormone levels in individuals that are more exposed to this cell phone radiation compared to those that don't use cell phones. Uh, so if you know that free testosterone or luteinizing hormone levels are um, off, this could definitely be something to consider as far as like where you're placing it when you sleep, putting it in airplane mode, any of those techniques that we stated in the episode. So again, this is kind of against the research, which is showing weight. So we're able to hold these babies later, but now there's this new add-on sure. of, of a challenge to fertility again, which would kind of go back to that argument that, you know, is this just a societal shift? Right, right. Um, and then they also allude to um, caffeine as, you know, a potential driver of infertility and, and high caffeine intake being more than five cups or 500 milligrams. That's a lot. Um, yeah. That's a lot of coffee and more than we would ever recommend anyone drinking just for, you know, the impact on your epinephrine and adrenaline alone and, and stress. Um, and that's largely likely the mechanism. Sure. Really? Yeah. yeah. Um, so we see it actually interrupting egg fertilization and implantation um, process. So we could see delays, you know, of pregnancy due to that, certainly. Um, and we know that, you know, 200 milligrams or so, or that like two cup max is what's typically recommended for pregnancy, breastfeeding, and those who are trying to conceive, which I think we're on board with very much so. Again, most likely for the stress impact. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone yeah. should go over that two cups anyway. No. Uh, you know, and, and identified also in here is the world of anxiety and depression. And I think that that's probably the largest consistent influencing factor. Uh, and so whether this was impacted uh, in the hunter-gatherer days where, you know, mood disturbance and or fight-or-flight stress response was, you know, interfering with micronutrient levels or interfering with functionality, um, when the body doesn't feel safe, 
it is not going to be reproducing. And so just like we talked about with Dr. Kabeca, who went into premature ovarian failure because her body was shunting her sexual hormones into cortisol for survival, and then she was able to rebalance that HPA axis and actually start to see regeneration in some sense of sexual function and actually get her menstrual cycle back. And uh, also we can see rebound in progesterone and estrogen levels when that stress is harnessed. Sure. Um, and then alcohol consumption is is called out, which again, I don't know that that's changed so much over mm-hmm. recent years. Um, if anything, they're saying that people are drinking less um, mm-hmm. generally, but we do see an expression of excessive estrogen and a decrease um, in testosterone with alcohol misuse and abuse. And we're talking more chronic alcohol consumption that would impact fertility hormones. Yes, absolutely. So we can see impact on follicular stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone, sperm count, testosterone, as well as sperm motility to be inversely uh, influenced by an increased concentration of alcohol consumption. So big picture would be, you know, watching as far as alcohol consumption is, playing with reducing overall, even during the time of uh, conception and or window of ovulation, especially. Um, Definitely we see a lot of that, like for men trying to ensure that like at day eight of your cycle, try to have your partner to not drink alcohol for maybe five days to get you through that peak of ovulation uh, as a technique and a lot of people swear by that as well as we've had a lot of detox babies for that reason yeah yeah totally (laughs) doing our reset restore renew 10-day detox you are not only not drinking alcohol but you're getting an abundance of antioxidants and again antioxidants are going to create more protection for egg and sperm health so less oxidative stress leads to less aging process less degradation less breakdown more robust resilient cells Um, and so by doing the 10-day detox i would say for women looking for fertility the best timing to do that would be like towards the end of their cycle or day one or two of their cycle so that they are doing that tail end of the 10-day detox during that day 12 influx um, of their ovulation. Yes, totally. Reaping all of the benefits Mm -hmm. of that. Um, Awesome. Okay. And as we're talking age and women, I think we need to really quick talk about, you know, the other... 50% 50% of the equation, which is baby making, the man, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, so do men experience a similar trend um, and are things changing in terms of male infertility and age? Yeah. So infertility occurs in men almost as often as women. I could argue it is just as often, but maybe just underlooked sure. or overlooked, I guess, if you will. Uh, and so there is about 9% of men that have experienced fertility problems compared to 11% of women statistically stating. But, you know, we define infertility, generally speaking, by trying to have a baby for one year and not conceiving. Uh, and, you know, we do see in research that generally that recommendation is up until age 35. But what's interesting is, and, and we didn't pull any stats here, but it would be interesting to look at You know, we've talked about birth as an industry, if you Mm -hmm. will, especially the episode we did with uh, Dr. Lindsay uh, with BirthFit. And we talked about the, you know, history of birthing as an industry and the financial incentives, et cetera. 
you know, once you cross age 35, truly, if you tell your OBGYN or your doctor that you'd like to have a baby and you have gone three tries, three months, they're going to jump into infertility. Um, and they're going to jump into all the bells and whistles of maybe not even just those oral medications of metformin and Clomid, which actually you don't really even hear about that much anymore. Right away, they're going into in vitro. Mm -hmm. Right away, they're going into freezing your eggs. And oh man, we need to make sure that we can pull what we can. But you know, this is a billion dollar industry here. Sure. Um, and so I just like to kind of state that and note that yes, infertility can be equally influenced by the woman and the man. Yet it seems like this fertility cliff really hits the back of women a lot harder and especially emotionally. Um, we see this to really be an area of impact where we do know that men can also have consistent decline when they hit that same kind of age range of over 35. Um, we do know that since the 1980s, the fertility rate for men in their 30s has increased by about 21%. And for men aged 40 and older, the rate has increased by about 30%. Um, and so we, just as we saw an increase with women, we're seeing an increase with men. But also we do see that the fertility rate in men younger than age 30 has actually decreased by 15%. So, you know, I think overall we're seeing testosterone decline. We had an entire podcast episode 326 on this topic, uh, natural ways to clinically boost testosterone levels. And um, we also talk in that episode about sperm motility and morphology. Um, and, you know, something we think about is ensuring absolutely that vitamin D status is optimized. And this could be done for both partners. But we do see in men, if they are low vitamin D, they will not have optimal testosterone. Testosterone. And then we also look to relax and regulate, which is a supplement that is appropriate for both women and men and has phenomenal outcomes. Um, but we've seen that myo inositol for men specifically to influence both the morphology and the motility. So morphology is the shape. Motility is the movement or speed or um, function of the sperm to actually get to the egg. And then we also watch out for, for men, and this study brought this up as well as a risk factor of uh, having too much heat in their scrotum area. And so they actually called it in this study, high scrotal temperature. Um, so tight clothing, which is really on trend now, hot baths, um, bicycle riders, are really kind of some of the things that we watch out for. Um, time in a hot tub, especially right around that conception time, could all interfere with male fertility. Yes, totally. And I'll link that episode on testosterone decline because I think it's a really good one. And we get more into the stats there too of like the actual hormone decline that we're seeing mm -hmm. in these various populations. And I mean, back to detox also, mm -hmm. we talk in that episode about endocrine disrupting compounds. Yes. And so there is such an influx of industrialized toxins from our plastics, our perfumes, our pesticides that are interfering with how sex hormone is expressed. Uh, and this is definitely something that I think will influence the fertility of decades to come. Yes. Okay. So beyond some of the modifiable risk factors we've already talked about, like the caffeine, alcohol, EMF exposure, stress, all of the things, let's talk about what else we can do to improve fertility as we age, or again, make this less of a cliff and more of a steady 
decline. Um, I think the or blood, you, yeah, let's yeah, surge yeah, back right? up. Let's yeah. go against yeah. the clock. I like, I like it. it. <laughs> um, okay, so um, maybe the blood sugar connection is kind of the first one. You alluded to keto a little bit here, but totally. there's some interesting information I think about you know blood glucose levels impacting fertility. Oh yeah, I mean women that are insulin resistant have a significantly higher chance of having PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. And PCOS is going to interfere with how our ovaries actually function. So if they have multiple cysts on them, they're not going to be optimal in housing healthy eggs and or in releasing that egg at time of ovulation. Uh, So we also have seen independent of PCOS, women with type 1 or type 2 diabetes to be more likely to have infertility. And uh, studies have shown that a history of infertility is associated with increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes, so maybe even overlooked blood sugar imbalance. In 2019, there was a study that found that Chinese women with high fasting blood sugar levels took longer to get pregnant on average. The cumulative pregnancy rate for 12 cycles of normal fasting plasma glucose was at 42%, significantly higher than that of the IFG impaired fasting glucose at 35% and or the diabetes group at 31%. So as we went from ideal or normal fasting glucose, there was a 7% decline with impaired and then a full 11% decline with diagnostic uh, of diabetes or that known blood sugar imbalance. And so one of the best things that you can do to optimize your fertility is to harness your blood sugar by regulating your carb consumption. So one way would be no naked carbs, of course, uh, ensuring that when you have carbohydrates, you pair these with protein and quality fats. Uh, but taking that next level to really accelerate the insulin sensitivity, uh, which really is favorable for especially that first trimester success of the pregnancy is going to be taking it next level to get your body into that hybrid mode of making ketones when we reduce the oxidative stress and we have significantly more harnessed blood sugar response. Um, and I think all the more reason to sign up for our keto class, right? Um, again, we've seen so many keto miracle babies come out of that class, especially in older women or kind of surprise babies sometimes, mm-hmm. um, welcome surprises. Um, but let's talk other nutrients, um, that can help to boost fertility beyond just, you know, quality high fat, um, yes. which can be supportive for sure. Well, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe we talk about quality high fat. Let's do that for sure. a minute. So, yeah. you know, I think that that's one of the other mechanisms of ketosis that's lovely is not only is it blood sugar stabilizing and supports a reduction of insulin levels as well as glucose levels, but ketosis when done correctly, Uh, If not a dirty keto, and I emphasize this very clearly, a dirty keto is just worrying about your macros, your carbs, protein, and fat grams. And a dirty keto could have uh, soybean oil, canola oil, any form of an industrialized processed seed oil. A dirty keto could be eating, you know, burger patties at a fast food chain, which we see that that burger patty has 30 plus ingredients, which could have uh, stimulating compounds for neurotoxins in the body, could also have antibiotic in the meat, could also have, again, these industrialized seed oils. And our cells have a bilipid membrane. So our cells are going to respond to fats and actually use fats 
in that barrier mechanism. So if you're eating and providing your body a pool of pro-oxidative inflammatory processed fats, you're not going to produce as healthy of hormone. Um, you're also going to have a suboptimal cellular response. Um, if we're talking about on a receptor level for how hormone docks like a lock and a key. Um, so big call out there would be on a quality keto and doing our like Mediterranean food as medicine approach, because when you eat an abundance of whole food based fats from your olive oil, coconut oil, avocados, getting quality fats from pasture-raised, grass-fed, and wild-caught sources of proteins, that this is actually going to aid in supporting that pregnenolone, which is that master hormone. We're going to see better adrenal rebound in this population, which could help from someone that was maybe in a food scarcity mode or was in that high fight or flight, over-calorie restricted, over-caffeinated individual. Their body's going to feel safe with that abundance of fat. They maybe get a surge of leptin, which tells the body it's safe and good to reproduce. And then they're also going to get better steroidal hormone production. So they could rebound their estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone just from doing a clean approach to keto. So I think that that's really important to emphasize is a high fat diet for fertility as a potential big mechanism too. Yes. Okay. All right. Now that we covered that, let's talk other um, nutrients. We've been alluding a lot to oxidative stress, which makes me think antioxidants. Yes. So CoQ10 is probably the most acknowledged in the world of fertility research and also, you know, addressed by a lot of infertility clinics where they might put individuals on 100 to 300 milligrams of CoQ10, uh, maybe even a month or two prior to egg retrieval or through whatever interventions they're going forward with for fertility. And this is because coenzyme Q10 is going to restore our oocyte or our egg mitochondrial function. And that helps to support fertility during our reproductive aging process. So less cell damage, if you will, and better egg cellular mitochondria or energy factory function, um, which means more viable, more alive and protected safe eggs, if you will. Um, we've seen in studies that pretreatment with CoQ10 can improve ovarian response and embryo quality. Uh, especially even in those with low prognosis and decreased ovarian reserve. There was a randomized controlled trial on that. And CoQ10 we think of as a rich form in organs. So this is where you could bring in that noble origins uh, into your smoothie. Um, you could also check out on our YouTube channel. We'll link our superfood chicken nuggets. And we will link in the episode also I have a coupon code for... Um, ancestral blends of grind meats. So we use in that video force of nature, uh, which is a great national company that ships across the country and partners with regenerative agriculture farms. So you're getting no hormone, no antibiotic, clean omega-3 from pasture. And then you're also going to get that CoQ10 if you do their ancestral chicken, ancestral bison, or ancestral beef, which incorporates a grind of organ in that mix, which is really beautiful and easy to do. Another consideration here would be oysters, uh, where you're consuming that organelle all in one slurp. Yes. And we hear about, you know, the aphrodisiac impact of, of oysters too. And it may just be because it's going to be supportive of, you know, ovarian reserve and sperm count and whatnot. Or the whole like 
is like and the whole Nietzsche's doctrine of signatures, there's that too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then I also think NAC and glutathione is maybe less talked about, you know, in the conventional kind of fertility treatment world, um, but probably equally important. Totally. So, you know, higher up the antioxidant chain is NAC and glutathione. So actually more powerful of an antioxidant than the CoQ10. Uh, And we have seen efficacy of NAC on endometriosis related pain, on size reduction of ovarian endometriomas, as well as favorable outcomes in fertility. There was a meta-analysis done on eight randomized controlled trials with over 900 women, and they found that NAC did improve rates of live births and ovulation in women with PCOS. Yes. Um, So that's where cellular antioxidants could come in as a a daily formula. And I would really get both partners on both of these supplements, Mm -hmm. both the CoQ10 complex and probably if we are, you know, approaching that again, cliff that doesn't quite exist. Maybe, um, you'd want to go for the 200 milligram, I think of the CoQ10 complex, especially if struggling with fertility. And I'd go for that for both partners and then cellular antiox at at least two capsules daily. Mm-hmm, most definitely. And so kind of looking at a timestamp where you and your partner maybe denote like a three to six month window, I think is, especially if you are in your late thirties, early forties, and both equally focused on bringing new life into this world, looking at like a three to six month window where you're really committed to these modifiable variables and you're really upping your supplement game, Mm -hmm. um, I think would be really strategic and probably even incorporating like a bi-monthly, so maybe every other month doing that 10-day detox, uh, the daily use of the cellular antiox at like three capsules daily minimum, and then looking at that CoQ10 at the 200 milligrams and doing the ketogenic approach to eating, especially if you're doing our food as medicine keto approach to eating for that six-month window, would really be highly advised uh, prior to doing any of that next level investment of egg retrieval, fertility, et cetera. Totally. Um, And then you mentioned relax and regulate um, when we were talking about men, Um, but I think equally important to be supplementing with that myo-inositol and magnesium bisglycinate for women equally, if not more so important. Totally. So relax and regulate is that one-two punch of chill and hormone balance with nervous system support because it has those two powerful ingredients, the magnesium bisglycinate, which can block the chronic stress signaling. It can actually cross the blood brain barrier and tell the pituitary not to stimulate the adrenals. Uh, and then the myo-inositol has really favorable influence on ovulation, insulin sensitivity, and egg quality. We've even seen improvement in sexual in successful, excuse me, implantation with and uterine health with use of the myo-inositol. And when we look at double-blind or randomized clinical trials, gold standard research, looking at myo-inositol, we're seeing dosages around 2,000 to 4,000 milligrams. And each scoop of our Relax and Regulate is giving you that 4,000 milligrams. So, you know, many competitors out there, you might have to pop 10 or 12 pills to get that. Um, That's what really takes our Relax and Regulate from being not just in a magnesium powder to being this one-two punch of these powerful ingredients. And that myo-inositol also 
is in itself an antioxidant compound. So that also helps with that aging or oxidative stress. And the myo-inositol itself has anxiolytic response. So it's anxiety reducing, helping the body to feel safe, which again is absolutely essential for fertility. Yes. Um, let's just kind of round table maybe a few more supplement ideas before we let y'all go. Um, I think starting with a quality prenatal is really key if you are in your reproductive years period um, and you want one with, you know, methylated B vitamins, um, a good amount of methylated folate, like our multi-avail mama, mm-hmm. um, chelated minerals, all of the things just kind of as your baseline, right. To make sure that you're setting a good foundation for success when you do get pregnant and can grow a super baby, if you will. Yes. And, you know, research supports starting your prenatal ideally a year prior to conception. So if you are in your thirties, especially, and just considering a second child, this would be your go-to daily multivitamin just to cover uh, the bases, if you will, and to maintain that optimal status. So that would be great. Four a day is the dosage of our multi-avail mama. So two twice daily with food. I will note that those chelated minerals really reduce the nausea impact that we can see with other prenatals on the market. Uh, and like you mentioned, Becky, we're getting 1340 micrograms of that methylated folate. Um, so always looking for over one gram or 1000 micrograms, excuse me, over 1000 micrograms or one milligram. Uh, and, uh, we, are always going to want to make sure that that's in that bioavailable, not folic acid, and then also preventing any non-necessary ingredients like food colorings and other binders and fillers and stabilizers that we'll see in many prenatals on the market. Um, And then I think supporting stress is really, really key. Um, Again, stress being a source of oxidative damage on the body, but also can shut down our hormone production mm-hmm. and, and shut down our fertility. Um, but there are also, you know, other mechanisms of some of our stress supporting supplements like our adaptogen boost, the rhodiola in there in particular has been shown to have favorable influence on fertility mm-hmm. um, and spontaneous ovulation. So we'll take it, right? Yeah. Yep. So adaptogen boost has that rhodiola in there and the dosage that was in that study that you're referencing, Becky, is seen at just three capsules. Generally, we recommend about two to four capsules daily of the adaptogen boost. So like I take that two at rise to midday, um, and that has the rhodiola, panax, ginseng, and cordyceps. So you're getting that stamina, you're getting protection from stress-induced fatigue, and you're also supporting the adrenal gland to not go into an overdrive mode uh, while also supporting it if it was burned out in the recovery process. Uh, So I think that that would be a really powerful player there. And then when I think of stress formulas beyond relax and regulate and adaptogen boost, I can't go without recommending calm and clear. Um, So calm and clear and adaptogen boost would be two of those that we would take to support our fertility. And then um, the calm and clear, we would want to stop once we did get that confirmation of that positive pregnancy test. The adaption boost would be a conversation with your provider. Um, We have not seen any concerns of the ingredients in the adaptogen boost, but we also don't have that clinical uh, 
safety check, if you will, of knowing that that's a safe one with full-term pregnancy. Uh, Becky used Adaption Boost through her um, pregnancy with Mabel completely. Um, And there's definitely other clients that we're making that benefit choice for. But Calm and Clear, because of the valerian extract in there and the ashwagandha, Ashwagandha, is it? Mm -hmm. Uh, The ashwagandha is maybe more of the primary one that we see that can drive uh, early-term delivery or miscarriage Mm -hmm. concern. Now, with that being said, with fertility and pregnancy, Calm and Clear can absolutely help with conception and implantation because you don't share a blood store with baby, uh, that zygote, until uh, we pass past the six-week mark. So if you're looking for fertility, you're going to be on top of your cycle. You're going to be testing once you're at day 30 of your cycle or maybe day 27 because you're so dang excited. Um, And you're definitely going to know and have time to reduce and stop that Calm and Clear. I I say that very clearly because I have seen Calm and Clear help people get pregnant time and time again because that blend of the herbs of nervines and adaptogens plus that L-theanine, which is a modulator for our brain chemistry, getting us into that alpha brainwave mode, phosphatidylserine supporting cortisol metabolism, and then a blend of B vitamins, very nutritive and tonifying and helps the body to stay balanced in that parasympathetic state. That's like my desert island supplement. If I don't take calm and clear, I get bitey, irritable, and super like incredible Hulk surgy. Um, So keeping your body in that safe space, even if you have to trick it until you get pregnant (laughs) and get into that mode, and then you could hold that formula for that time, I still would recommend that as a quality fertility booster, the calm and clear. Totally. Um, and then I throw bio C plus into the mix. We talked a lot about vitamin C in, um, the episode, um, on progesterone 374 and how it can impact progesterone up to 77% with a supplemental dose of 750 milligrams. Um, so I think that's a no brainer and it's also going to contribute again to that antioxidant status. Um, and it will also be supportive of your cortisol production Mm -hmm. and all of the things. Um, so I think that's a great one to throw into the mix at like two capsules daily. Yes. And would stay throughout the entire pregnancy. Absolutely. Yep. Especially to support, you know, that suppressed immune system that we see. Mm -hmm. And if you have other children that are bringing things home, you might be taking more than that. Yes. And then two additional players to consider as we wrap up maca. I mentioned when I was talking about Dr. Annika Becca, maca is a Peruvian root that actually can impact the pituitary gland. So the pituitary gland is the P of our HPA access. It plays a big role on whether we are stimulating our sex hormone function or our adrenals in survival or reproductive mode. And the pituitary gland specifically makes our FSH and our LH, as well as our prolactin and oxytocin. Uh, And so when we think of this influence on fertility and sex hormone, prolactin levels should be elevated with a breastfeeding mama. Um, And prolactin elevation is one of the mechanisms that potentially keeps breastfeeding women from getting pregnant. Um, But we also see prolactin levels increase from our autonomic nervous system as a stress responder. Um, And so some women, you might want to get your prolactin levels tested to see where those fall. And especially if those are high, you might not just need maca, but you might want to bring in Vitex, um, which is also known as chaste tree or chaste tree bark. 
um, Chase Tree Berry, you name it. Um, this extract um, has been shown to aid in prolonging the luteal phase. So if you've done some cycle mapping or you know that you're ovulating um, in that classic window of day 10 through 12, but your cycle is shorter around 26 days or shorter, then we would definitely want to consider that Vitex. Um, we can see things like skin breakouts occur as that supplement is being used. And again, you might want to look at prolactin as a primary influence before you would bring in the Vitex. Um, but if we're looking for that luteal phase length, that could be a powerful tool and is often talked about as like a infertility miracle um, herb sure, to bring to the table. Super helpful for PMS symptoms mm -hmm. as well. Um, or if we're seeing low progesterone and more estrogen dominance, I think that can be a valuable player for sure. Yep. But I'd probably start with maca yeah. first because yeah. of that adaptogenic element. Sure. And maca could be started at one gram. Vitex is like 100 to 300 milligrams. Um, whereas the maca, we think of around 1000 milligrams. And a teaspoon of maca is providing us, I believe, around two to three grams. Um, so adding a teaspoon of maca into your smoothies would be beautiful, or uh, taking that in a 500 milligram capsule twice daily could do the trick and give you some more adaptogen support. Okay. All right. I think we've done it. Have we busted the myth? I think so. <laughs> um, you know, so I think big picture, get your blood sugar under control and eat an anti-inflammatory high antioxidant diet. Um, you can do this by joining our 12-week food as medicine ketosis program. We would love to have you in there, even if you have other goals non-related to the fertility cliff myth. Like I said, we can see amazing weight loss. We can see reduction in fatty liver we can see mood stability and so much more. And then of course, those lovely keto miracle babies. Uh, so if you have not yet checked out our program and you're a listener of the Naturally Nourished podcast, this is the place for you. Go on over to AllieMillerRD.com, grab a spot in our live virtual 12-week food as medicine ketosis class starting January 10th. We cannot wait to meet you there. Otherwise, you can go to naturallynourishedrd.com and check out all of our show notes from today's episode, including supplement links and research studies discussed. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at allymillerrd.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.